Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you on this Monday morning. Hope you are doing fantastic and well out there uh, as we head through uh, the middle of November. And uh, now it's a downhill race. Four weeks to go before the end of something uh, that looks like the end of the year, uh, which is fantastic. I'm sure everyone is looking forward to it. Uh, some kind of summer holidays, even if you're not going away, uh, I'm sure that you are enjoying it. In fact, uh, I was out this weekend. Uh, I went out to Modifantine, and it was really, really hot besides anything else. But there were people out there. Uh, they were wearing masks most of the time and just uh, enjoying the market uh, and enjoying the sunshine. So I hope that you are uh, doing that as well. I'm very excited uh, on the line today for our show is that we have a special guest. Uh, we're going to be doing a focus in show uh, to, today, uh, and we're going to be talking about democracy around the world, human rights work, um, and uh, how do we go about uh, defending it, because there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, going on, and, uh, and the man who knows quite a lot about it is Il- Ilan Osri. Uh, he is from the Rule Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and he joins us on the show today. Ilan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us on the New Blue Review. Thank you so much for having me, Benji. Uh, so, so perhaps this before we get into your work, uh, it, it is the Rule Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. For people who don't know what uh, or who, rather, uh, Rule Wallenberg is, can you maybe give us a bit of a background? <clears throat> Absolutely. So, uh, Rule Wallenberg was a uh, Swedish diplomat um, who was credited in the 1944 for saving around 100,000 Jews from Hungary during uh, the Holocaust. And he's noted as one of the heroes of humanity. Uh, and not uh, that many years ago, there was uh, some commemoration on the centennial of his uh, birth of uh, his massive, massive impact that he's had on the world, but I would say definitely on Jewry when it came to uh, Europe during the Holocaust. I think that I couldn't do him justice by giving the fullest of explanations. What I would say is that there are many organizations around the world who fight for human rights like we do, um, but having him front and center as the focal point and as the uh, person who gives us inspiration for the work that we do every day is very fitting. Uh, given the work that we do, that uh, we focus on five different pillars, which I'm happy to get into a little later, um, many of them relate to what Raoul Wallenberg was able to do during his time in the 40s. I will also just comment that, you know, it's not easy for people to understand the issues and the obstacles that Raoul had to face in order to do what he did uh, and make sure that people were not only saved during the Holocaust, but other people understood the importance of why saving them, uh, you know, wh- why that was important. I would also comment to your audience that the focal point of today's injustice around the world, you need to understand injustice before you fight for justice. And that's something that our chair, Erwin Kotler, has said many times. It's something that I'm reminded of because when I think of someone like Raoul Wallenberg who was able to save thousands of thousands of Jews in just six months in the 
maybe hardest time of the uh, of the period of the Holocaust, it's something that I think gives me and the others that work with me focus as to how we can fight for those who are victims of injustice today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, an interesting element of, of your work, uh, which which I actually think we should dwell on just for a moment, is, of course, Rule Wallenberg eventually disappeared, uh, not from the Nazis, uh, actually because of the Soviets, uh, as far as we know, and has never really been a proper story told. So one of the things that you guys do look into is, uh, is, is Rule Wallenberg and, and, uh, and thinking about uh, or, or doing inspections into what what happened uh, to him. That's absolutely right. So the 17th of January every year uh, in Canada is uh, designated as the Raoul Wallenberg Commemorative Day, uh, which was the day in 1945 that he uh, disappeared into a Soviet gulag. Um, and, of course, there's not a lot to explain what happened after that, uh, as I'm sure your audience can appreciate. But what I... We'll just comment quickly is that today a lot of our work focuses around many projects, but also um, political prisoner cases uh, in Iran, in China, in many places around the world, uh, and making sure that the spotlight doesn't just focus on one, but all of the political prisoners that we uh, aim to serve and aim to free uh, is a big part of our work. And myself as the head of the communications team for the center, my job is not only to make sure that we are getting out the information that needs to get out, but that those who have the ability to shine a brighter light, whether they be journalists, parliamentarians, so on and so forth, uh, they join us in that effort because, as I'm happy to get into a little later, the partnerships is what makes the human rights work around the world uh, actually come to fruition. You cannot do this on your own. There is no one human rights organization that is able to accomplish everything. It's only by partnering with others, with those who are in different parts of the country, in different parts of the world, who have different specializations that we can all work together to make justice a reality for those who are victims of injustice. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Let's talk a little bit about uh, that for a moment then. Political prisoners, um, I guess... South Africa knows something about that in our past, but it's not um, its not an issue which I'd say we, we spend a lot of time thinking about, certainly locally or um, in, in our own country, maybe in, in next-door countries like um, Zimbabwe or, or maybe Swaziland, something like that. Uh, but, but you guys have a big focus on them. So, so where are uh, the kind of political prisoners uh, being held these days, and, and, and on what defences? What what constitutes you being being locked up uh, in the, in 2020 um, uh, for, for 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 political offences? Absolutely. So I I'll just preface this by saying that we represent political prisoners in many places, uh, but the list is is not uh, just what we represent. There are political prisoners around the world who are represented by others. Uh, in different countries. The countries that we tend to focus on uh, are Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, Russia, uh, the Philippines, Venezuela, and some other handful of cases here or there. Our work is inspired by our center's chair. His name is Professor Erwin Kotler. He was the uh, Minister of Justice in Canada for many years. He was a parliamentarian for many years. But way before that, he was has always been an international human rights lawyer, 
Uh, and in the 70s, he took up the two most important cases facing the world, which were Soviet Jewry or the Soviet issue uh, at all in um, in what is now Russia, and also the issue of apartheid South Africa, which I'm sure your audience is more than familiar with. Uh, and he did so by representing two specific political prisoners, Nelson Mandela in South Africa and Natan Sharansky in Soviet uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, so today, what, does that, what does that mean? Uh, just before, it's, I mean, it's an interesting piece of history for South Africans. What does it mean to have a Canadian human rights lawyer, uh, you know, representing uh, someone abroad? How does that work? I think the way to f- realize the impact of the work is to focus on the international community. So it's unfortunate that uh, these people need representation at all. But as I said earlier, it's all about highlighting the case and all about making sure people understand the severity of what's going on, what's needed to happen in the near and further future to uh, bring justice to these victims, but also to ensure that the case does not get repeated uh, by the uh, country in question, so South Africa, in the case of Nelson Mandela. Um, making sure the spotlight is on those cases is, I think, the most important part. So having a lawyer who might be here in Canada um, doesn't change the fact that they're still able to shine a light on what's going on. Uh, and even today, um, Professor Kotler is still in touch with uh, some of the family of uh, Nelson Mandela uh, and still works collectively with other organizations that he was involved with in the 70s to make sure that political prisoners of the 21st century are given the same uh, highlight. Now, you and I both know that technology has changed the way in which the world has worked so much, but that's definitely true in human rights work. Uh, it's un, it's, it's not able, you're not able to make a big comparison between 2020 and 1970 in terms of how that spotlight gets shown. But what I would say is that when you are able to bring forth a huge political prisoner case, uh, obviously Nelson Mandela being one of them, Natan Sharansky being another one, uh, Said Ibrahim in Egypt would have been the third one uh, around the same time. I think that the focus should always be on how the case is uh, coming to fruition, how it's transpiring, and how the international audience, the international community, can be involved. And so Professor Kotler's involvement uh, when it came to Nelson Mandela's case, but also Natan Sharansky's case and others, um, was very much about submitting legal briefs on behalf of the political prisoners uh, and uh, being their Canadian legal counsel uh, in the international uh, realm, the international community. So going back to the initial question, right? What what gets you locked up today in a place like, say, Iran? Um, that that suddenly the uh, a dictatorship like that would uh, consider you to be um, uh, properly uh, deserving of, of of being imprisoned. Yes. So um, we could focus on a number of cases. The most timely, in my opinion is that of Nasreen Soutadeh, which currently we're undergoing a campaign where we're trying to highlight what's been going on with her with some new updates, which I'll get into in a second. But she was first imprisoned uh, in Iran in two, uh, 2010, and she was sentenced to 11 years in prison. And that was for the crime of defending the vulnerable, and uh, that included the, those arrested during what was called the Green Movement Uprising uh, in 2009. Uh, and since then... She has served uh, many years of her sentence, not all the years of her sentence, but just recently, within the last two weeks, um, she was actually released on furlough, which means she was given temporary release. Um, And this was after a 45-day hunger strike 
that she um, committed to. She became quite sick, as your audience can probably appreciate. Uh, and we've now learned just in the last few days that upon her arrival home, uh, she was able to see a doctor, and it turns out that she, <clears throat> excuse me, she had contracted COVID-19 uh, when the Iranian officials moved her from one terrible prison to an even worse terrible prison. Um, and that second prison is known to be quite COVID um, wrapped up at the moment. And so it's not just focusing on what got Nasreen or other political prisoners into prison, but it's also about what's happening to them while they're there, um, making sure that her voice was being heard while she was um, having her her hunger strike while in prison. I think your audience can only imagine the anguish and uh, you know hardship that she endured, but I think that focusing on why she was there, which was for giving others a voice during, as I said, the Green uh, Movement Uprising in 2009, um, and you know trying to defend those in, uh, vulnerable people in Iran just shows that the level of uh, or the absence, I should say, of rule of law, let alone the ability to defend yourself in the face of, I'd say, fascist governments, uh, is something that we focus on today, not just in Iran, but in other places as well. Um, so that's Nasreen. That would be in Iran. Uh, the other political prisoner um, that we're, we could focus on at the moment in China, um, there are many political prisoners, I should say, and I don't actually want to single out any specific one of them, but I would say is right now with the situation that's going on with the Uyghurs, which is a religious community in the Zhejiang province in China, um, this is hopefully something that your audience has already heard about, but it's uh, in fact a genocide that's been going on against these people by the Communist um, Party, the, uh, the, the party that rules the Chinese government. Focusing on those issues is something of incredible importance on the international stage. Uh, and for many people, including one political prisoner named Ekpar Asat, who is uh, someone that we represent, but he's an ethnic Chinese uh, Uyghur who um, had founded a very successful, actually, social media platform uh, in China uh, for the Uyghur community. Um, he was arrested simply for... Uh, being successful with that platform. He did everything he could to follow the rules. He did everything he could to make sure that he was following the uh, Chinese government laws. Uh, but still, he was uh, imprisoned for that. And I think that the focus on the Uyghurs, but definitely Ekpar's case, shows that you don't need to do much to upset many of these governments around the world, Venezuelan, Iranian, Chinese, whatever uh, it is, these dictatorships, these terrible places where there isn't an ability for you to live an innocent life while trying to protect those around you. Uh, in Ekpar's case and many uh, Uyghurs like him, all he needed to do was be a Uyghur, be a member of that community. And I think that if we can focus on the amount of people who've been imprisoned, not just by these governments, but the speed in which these trials occur, the speed in which they um, stay in prison and the amount of time they stay there until maybe they've been released, uh, it's something that the international world needs to keep a focus on. We're talking today to Ilan Osri. He is the Director of Operations at the Ruhl-Wallenberg Center for Human Rights and uh, just getting a, a perspective on human rights work uh, in 2020 and uh, around the world. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman.
You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Talking today to this, uh, the, the head of operations, director of operations for the Rural Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, Ilan Orzi. And, uh, he's talking to us about where, uh, human rights are, uh, at the moment. And, uh, I guess what we can do to, to help out. Um, now, Ilan, one of uh, the one of the things that you guys are doing, as you said, is highlighting cases of these uh, prisoners, uh, and you've you've pulled in some star power uh, for uh, a big report that's coming up. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So um, the one interesting part of the work, and I must share with your audience, that I've only been part of the center uh, for the last six months or so. The one interesting part of our work that I've gotten to understand, but I wouldn't have known had you asked me six months ago, was the amount of partnerships, but also who is part of those partnerships. And as I said earlier, the partnerships are key. We cannot be successful on our own. We must unite with other similar and even greater forces to be able to achieve what we want to achieve on the international stage. Um, so uh, as we uh, record this interview the um, unveiling of a very important report will come out uh, at 9.30 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, which is uh, my time in uh, here in Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. Um, and what I want to just let your audience focus on, because I can't divulge too much of the uh, report before it's uh, being unveiled, is that to be able to understand the needs and rights of journalists around the world takes a lot, and I mean a lot, of understanding of the individual rights given by each country. But the report we're launching today, which has been written by our chair, Professor Erwin Kotler, and that is released by what's called the High-Level Panel of Legal Experts on Media Freedom. Uh, this panel has been put together uh, by international members, including, but not limited to, Amal Clooney, who represents um, the uh, focus part of the United Kingdom uh, and her involvement uh, is in, on behalf of the UK. Uh, it is also um, being uh, hosted up by the uh, IBARI, which is the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute. Their director, Baroness Helena Kennedy, um, is also part of this panel. There are many famous people part of this panel, but I wanted to just highlight the report. So the report coming out is going to highlight the, uh, it's called a consular report. The actual title is A Pressing Concern, Protecting and Promoting Press Freedom by Strengthening Consular Support to Journalists at Risk. And in short, what this report focuses on is the need to strengthen the protections for press freedom around the world. So not only is a country responsible for the journalists that come to it to do reporting from other countries, but it also has responsibility for the reporters it sends to other countries. So if you, for example, are a reporter in South Africa and you head over to, let's say, Venezuela to do reporting on the situation on the ground there, there are responsibilities and rights given to you, not only by your home country, South Africa, but also the, there is a need for those rights to be given to you by the host country, Venezuela, in this case. And that is close of course, true all over the world, but making sure that there is a standard, that there is an understanding about how countries need to approach media freedom, how to protect the journalists who are reporting on what's going on, whether it be a first world or third world country, a situation where there is a high level of respect for journalism or maybe a low level of respect, no matter what the situation is, 
this report aims to highlight the uh, the actions that countries, both host and home, can take in order to make sure their journalists are protected and also to ensure media freedom around the world. Uh, we're very happy to be part of this uh, release. It's going to happen, as I said, at 9.30 a.m. And if your audience is interested, I would encourage them to follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, or on Instagram. Uh, just look up RWCHR, which is the acronym for the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Uh, and we will be posting all the updates, but it will be a live uh, panel that we are doing in cooperation with the Canadian government, as well as IBARI, as I said before, the International Bar Association. Uh, and this report... It's very long. It's 150 pages. Uh, it uh, takes uh, quite a good cup of tea to get through. But I think that the more journalists, for sure, but the more general citizens that understand those needs and the rights that are currently but also need to be afforded to journalists uh, will help ensure that we have more media freedom around the world. And, of course, more sunshine is the best disinfectant uh, for issues in government and outside of government as well. Yeah, very, very interesting, and I think uh, I'm sure people will enjoy watching that uh, if they have an interest in press freedom, which I think is is very, very important. And we've seen a lot of attacks on press freedom uh, in places like Turkey uh, in the last while, locking up journalists uh, and, and this sort of thing. So uh, definitely very, uh, very well needed. And talking of, of that, Ilan, uh, you know, uh, there is a sense around the world where uh, liberal democracy has sort of come under threat to some extent. Some countries uh, kind of gone a little bit backwards in terms of their rule of law um, support. Uh, places maybe like Poland, Hungary, uh, Turkey, we've already mentioned. Um, and, and even in Western democracies, there's a sort of uncomfortability with, with, with this particular project. And it's something that you guys also, also focus on uh, quite a lot. So talk to us about you know, how do these processes work? Because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, find uh, maybe international law or some of these sort of lofty principles may be interesting, but, but it's a little bit woolly um, and, and, and people are not sure quite how to engage with them. So I would say for the average citizen to get involved simply requires a lot of sharing and posting about what's going on. Now, journalists... It very much depends on the journalists and their outlet, but I think that um, when an organization like ours gets involved in various cases, the first thing we need to do is understand the press abilities on the ground. So as we, if we go back to Venezuela, for example, we have a political prisoner that we're representing. Her name is Judge Maria Fiuni, um, and she is, uh, we, we just uh, submitted a human rights complaint um, to the UN, which was done in conjunction with IBARI, as I mentioned before, the International Bar Association, and Human Rights Foundation. And the the reason I bring up this case is because here is someone who is intrinsically involved in the legal process and the legal system in Venezuela who is now being imprisoned. The, uh, the ability for us to showcase Judge Afiuni's situation showcase why her case is important, but also make it clear to those outside of Venezuela is somewhat easy as long as we understand the international press. But to be able to make efforts on the ground to make a connection with the journalists who can report on this in a safe way, hopefully, in a way that they can be impactful on her case and can maybe in some way change the course that she is headed down, 
Um, that depends on our ability to work with our partners and deal with the press on the ground. So what I would say is it's very difficult for us to be involved in the case where we don't understand the players on the ground. Thankfully, the people that I work with, uh, Yona um, Diamond, who is our legal counsel, uh, he works very uh, he, he works very hard on a lot of these cases, and he really takes the lead. And he, he's the one that understands what's going on, and together between him and Professor Kotler, um, they come up with a strategy for how the uh, complaint will be submitted, but it is between all of us on the team at the Raoul Longbook Center for Human Rights to understand how we will then take that advocacy, that submission, and bring it to fruition in a communication standpoint. How are we going to not just showcase it on our website, not just put out a press release, but who can we put this, who, whose hands can we put this in, the, in front of to say, we need you to take a look at this so that you can be impactful on Judge Afiuni or whoever's life and make sure that they are given justice, not in the long term, but hopefully in the short term. It's not a process that is uh, carbon copied from one country to the other. There is a different approach in every case we take. But I would say that there are many organizations that lead the approach themselves. Uh, just as an example, we are currently working with other organizations right now on a campaign for Nasreen Soutadeh, as I mentioned before, a political prisoner in Iran. Um, it very much depends on who, what assets we have, not on the ground, not just on the ground in Iran, but also who are, are we able to work with in the international community, who has the ear of the movers and shakers, whether they be politicians, uh, journalists, whether they be people somehow in the United Nations, um, whoever it is we can put this submission, this press release, this product in front of, and we can show them this is what's going on, here's what you can do to help, that is where we can be most impactful. Now, part of that, uh, as you say, the United Nations creating uh, legislation, and there's uh, quite a big issue which has come onto the agenda recently, which is the well, – recently it's been around for a while, but but it is on the agenda uh, – Sergei, the Sergei Majinsky legislation. Talk to us a bit about that. What What is it all about? So um, Magnitsky legislation uh, is legislation that uh, essentially provides governments the ability to sanction – foreign uh, individuals or foreign governments who have committed human rights abuses. Now, um, currently, this is something that the center has undertaken in a very proactive way. Um, not only does our chair, Erwin Kotler, talk about this on various webinars, uh, and uh, recently he actually put out a piece uh, in uh, what's called uh, Moment Magazine, which is a, a Jewish political voices magazine, where he called for Magnitsky uh, legislation to be enacted against the Chinese government for what's going on with the Uyghurs, uh, which I alluded to, or which I mentioned before. Um, but the legislation is very important. There, the ability to say to an individual or a country, uh, we are not going to work with you because of your you know, crimes in X way or your human rights abuses in this place of the world uh, is something that we believe more countries need to be taking up, and it is a concrete way for the international community to stop not only working and partnering with countries they shouldn't be, but to highlight that as an example of where their red line is. They need to make a standard for what countries they will work with and what countries they won't work with. Uh, and so... The, uh, you, you mentioned his name, Sergei Magnitsky. Um, the legislation was uh, first passed in 2002, which followed the death of Sergei Magnitsky in Russia. Uh, he was a tax uh, auditor, uh, advisor excuse me, in Russia. Um, he was 
arrested in 2008, uh, and his subsequent death was, I think, just around a year later uh, in police custody. There's a lot of questions around his death, but it is very clear that the case itself is a case of human rights abuse. And the reason that this uh, at these sanctions are so important is because if that is just one example of what's going on in the world today, this was not just this was less than eight years ago. Um, it is important to make sure that we prevent those in the future by ensuring that the international community sets standards for what countries they will work with and what countries they won't work with based on the actions of those countries. It's not enough for countries to say the right thing. They need to also do the right thing. Yeah, very, very interesting, uh, I suppose, approach to, to getting getting countries to actually uh, you know, do the proper work that they need to do when, when it comes to, to these issues. Let me ask you about the worldwide human rights um, process and groups uh, as it is. As you say, you, 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 you speak to a lot of different groups, you work with a lot. And, and I mean, without mentioning names, I think sometimes when people say, oh, well, you know, we're from a human rights organization, people are suspicious. Um, they sometimes feel like these are groups that are uh, maybe undermining Western democracies without going after actual dictatorships. I mean, is this a problem that you guys run into as, as the Center for Human Rights? Do you, do you find that sometimes you're on the opposite side of the fence to people who you think you should be on the same side of? From my perspective, I don't think that that's a commonality we experience. I think um, the way to understand our partnerships is to understand that everyone has their own area of expertise. No one human rights shop does it all. Uh, and because there is, unfortunately, so many areas of expertise when it comes to uh, human rights, and I say ex uh, unfortunately because hopefully in the future there will be a commonality amongst how we approach human rights, and the Magnitsky legislation is just one example of that. But every human rights organization takes their own approach to how they will enact their form of advocacy and, and their form of communications. Um, it won't be a case where we can find you know, one example of one organization that works really well in one space and also really well in another space, and we can you know, copy what they do and just do it the same. That isn't really the way the world uh, works. The way the process on the international stage works is by ensuring that our communications and our cooperation with other partnerships is what propels us forward. So we have uh, represent, excuse me, we have cooperation with many human rights organizations, uh, Human Rights uh, Foundation being one of them. Um, we are uh, very much in touch with the UN Watch, which you may be familiar with, run by Hillel Neuer, who is uh, also uh, a Canadian uh, Jew. Um, we have many, many, many uh, connections within the International Bar Association, uh, a, a group called Par Parliamentarians for Global Action. I could go on and list so many different organizations, but as I said before, no one does everything. They all do a number of things, or at least one thing, extremely well, and partnering with them to bring our expertise and their expertise to the same table is what it's all about. And when you put forward a UN submission, whether you're filing on behalf of uh, a political prisoner, as I mentioned Judge Afiuni uh, not a moment ago, or if you want to focus on uh, the genocide that's happening with the Uyghurs in China, it's important that you find the right and the most strategic partnership you can to bring your advocacy to the forefront. Because you can say what it is you need to say, but you need to be making sure that those who need to hear it are the ones hearing it. And making those partnerships is what propels our voice forward to those listeners. A lot of the discussion we've had so far 
has been around uh, individuals, people being uh, imprisoned, uh, etc. Uh, but but you also guys focus on on more general topics, um, particularly the Holocaust and, and genocide and, and preventing mass atrocities. Uh, so so uh, maybe explain to us what what that is all about and, and why the center also focuses on, on, on that like larger issue. Sure. So the center, we have five pillars that are the focus of our pursuit of justice. So the first pillar is our uh, human, heroes of humanity, um, Raoul Lomberg obviously being one of them, but people who have been the focal point in history, even recent history, um, to ensure that human rights advocacy um, gets accomplished. Uh, the second pillar is the Holocaust and genocide. Um, this is one category, but obviously those two are two different pieces, uh, two different sides, I should say, of the same coin. Um, so if we look at what's happening right now in with the Uyghurs, there are many uh, pieces that are similar to the Holocaust, the genocide against the Jews in the 1930s and 40s. The challenge is making sure that we focus correctly on what is going on in present day. We draw correct uh, parallels between genocides and other genocides, and we call out what must be called out. Um, I can talk a little bit more about that, but what I focus on is uh, Professor Kotler, our chair, he is one of the co-chairs of what's called the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which is IPAC for short, uh, and that is an organization of parliamentarians around the world uh, representing different legislators around the world who have just recently uh, labeled the uh, what's going on in uh, China against the Uyghurs as genocide, and they've called for specific action against that. So that would fall under the Holocaust and genocide pillar. Um, the next one is protecting democracy. Media freedom, which I talked about earlier in our report coming out uh, later today, are uh, definitely a part of that. But I think that there's a lot of focus around just generally focusing on freedom, not just uh, media freedom, but freedom uh, to be able to say what you need to say, freedom of expression. Um, Professor Kotler is very famous here in Canada for um, leading and uh, founding what was called um, the Iran Accountability Week in uh, the Canadian government. Uh, It's something that's been taken up uh, in other places around the world as well, but that is all part of the freedom part, making sure that democracy is being protected where it exists. Uh, defending political prisoners, many political prisoners that we represent, I've talked about that already. Uh, and our final pillar, uh, advancing women's rights uh, and uh, gender equality where possible. I would say that all of these come together in many ways. There's, there's very rarely a situation where we're working on just one pillar. It's very common for one of our pillars to overlap with another when we're working on a specific case. Um, but those are the five pillars that propel us forward. There are the five pillars of our mission statement and they make sure that when we are pursuing justice in the work that we do, that it is focused in a specific way. Um, now, many people, myself included, would say that there is so much to do, even under just these five pillars. And I'm sure that if I put my head with my team together for another hour, we'd come up with five more pillars that we could accomplish. Um, but as I said, no organization can do it all. Every organization needs to have its focus, its strengths. And these are the five pillars of our strength. These are the five pillars of what we focus on. Uh, we will never, uh, you know, not work with an organization just because they don't match what it is we uh, work on. But making sure that we are able to focus on these pillars helps us 
it guides our work, but it also helps others understand this is what the Raul Wallenberg Center is about, this is how they focus, uh, and this is the kind of work that they get involved with. Uh, and my hope for in the future is that we can expand our organization. Uh, currently, we're only a staff of uh, eight or nine. My hope is that in the future, we can have many more staff who can help us do uh, more than our current potential. Uh, but we, we try to do as best we can with the means that we're given. And from our small shop in Montreal, Canada, uh, we do quite a lot, in my opinion. But it's making sure that we aren't just doing the work, but that others are hearing the work that we're doing as well. Talking today to Ilan Orzi, uh, he is the director of operations for the Rural Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. We're going to take a short break. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. Uh, we're talking today to Ilan Orzi. Uh, he is from the Rural Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. And uh, we're just talking about uh, some of the work that's going on internationally when it comes to and uh, and the kind of uh, things that are on really on the agenda. Uh, I wanted to ask one more thing about Rural Wallenberg, Ilan. Uh, I I noticed that there's a lot of other organisations that are named after, connected to, interested in. Rural Wallenberg. Do you, do you guys is there like a club of Rural Wallenberg uh, uh, organisations? <laughs> uh, you know, maybe we'll start one. That's not a terrible idea. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with some other organizations that um, either use this name or have a similar abbreviation um, to our name. Um, to my knowledge, those organizations, we, we all act very independently, but um, obviously we're steered by the same hero of humanity. Um, so we do overlap in certain areas. Um, we are the only one in Canada, though. So uh, there might be other. I believe there's one in Sweden, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there are there are others around the world who uh, might use a similar name. Unfortunately, unless our work overlaps on a specific case or a project, uh, we don't have a uh, full uh, agreement with them to do similar projects. Really, the focus is uh, making sure that the work we do is uh, done. So I do hope that in the future we will have this club that you mentioned because it sounds like a fun time. Um, but I, I, at the moment, that's not something that's uh, really come to fruition. Now, something I've noticed also throughout um, the, the, you know, the looking at the website and, and understanding your mission. So a lot of your work is is abroad in the Middle East, Venezuela, as you said. Uh, the the one local issue that you seem to focus on in Canada is the issue of indigenous rights uh, of indigenous Canadians, uh, and I don't know actually about this issue and uh, maybe it's more of an internal issue to Canada, but I don't know if most people think about that when they think about Canadian politics. So maybe give us an insight into what what the work in Canada is about when it comes to Indigenous Canadians. So the uh, plight of the Indigenous Canadians um, is vast. I would say that it breaks down depending on um, which first na- uh, they're often referred to First Nations here in Canada, um, which Aboriginal group we're talking about, uh, and what is currently going on. A lot of our work um, is international only because the partners that we work with um, have an international focus, and so we don't take a lot of Canadian-based cases. That said, Erwin um, Cotler was a parliamentarian, a former Minister of Justice, as I mentioned, and he has a lot of 
connections and the ability to advocate for what's going on here at home. Um, so I would say that a lot of what we do focuses on um, the upholding of democracy and human rights for not only those internationally, but those here at home. Um, the work we do very rarely here in Canada with um, the Aboriginal community is ensuring that the needs are being met and where there are cases in front of the Canadian government or uh, the courts, uh, we can be of assistance to them. Now, it's only been, as I said, six months of my time here at the centre, and I have not yet had the pleasure to be involved in one of those cases. But I would say that the issue of Indigenous Canadians, of Aboriginal Canadians, is not uh, something that is being ignored, thankfully, not just um, by other organizations like ours, but also by the Canadian government. There's a lot of involvement. There's a whole ministry devoted to ensuring that Indigenous Canadians um, have the uh, services and the attention that they deserve. Um, I'm sure that many advocates would probably rightfully say that they're not being given enough attention. There are There's more that the Canadian government and every individual Canadian can do. Um, but this is an issue that, thankfully, is one that we can be involved with on the periphery. It's also one that should we notice there is a lot more going on under the surface, uh, we might have the upper hand to be able to enact change. Uh, we are the people on the ground. And if there are certain parliamentarians, journalists, etc., that we can be involved with and we can uh, help move the needle with, then that is something that not just our chair, but the other members of my team uh, will work together to ensure happens. I'm Benji Shulman. We're talking human rights today on the program. Uh, with Ilan Orzi, all the way from Canada, uh, and uh, he is talking to us about about the about the work that they do uh, in in defending human rights around the world. Ilan, I notice there's no African countries on your list. Is, is, are we are we lacking in in, in human rights abuses on the continent? <laughs> uh, I would say, unfortunately, no. You are not lacking. Um, but again, every organization needs to have its area of expertise. Um, my hope is that we are able to include more countries on our list in the near future, um, but I believe that would take a fair amount of more staff uh, uh, involvement. If you can help us fundraise and get some more staff on our team to be able to make that happen, I am more than happy to pursue that as a priority. Um, but we do currently operate at a very high capacity for what we're able to do, and I'm sure that should the specific case arise that leads us to need to be involved, not just want to be involved, we will be involved. Uh, but I don't think that that's uh, really come to yet. I should mention to your audience, we're only about five years old. Um, the organization only came to be in 2015, uh, and we've only recently um, breached more than seven staff members. Uh, we are still growing. We are uh, still in the uh, small business nature of the Human Rights Foundations. And um, my hope is that in the future we will have representation in every country. But uh, you're right, we, we do lack in certain continents, definitely uh, Africa being one of them. But I, my hope is that by the time uh, we get the ability to advocate in certain areas, there hopefully will be less need for us to advocate as well. One can only hope. Now, obviously, you, I'm sure that uh, fundraising is a very important issue. Uh, but how can ordinary people interested in these things uh, actually get involved, uh, understand what's going on, etc. This is probably the most common question I'm given, and I want to be fair in saying to your audience that I still don't have the best answer, but I would say two major things. The first is uh, being involved is 
not just putting your money where your mouth is in terms of donation, but it's also making sure your mouth is saying the right things. When you're able to help share the messages of organizations like ours, whether that be through social media, email campaigns, uh, various different things that we put out, um, I've only recently started to bring back our monthly newsletter, which we are now putting out. Uh, we put out email blasts all the time, making sure you understand what is going on and how you can help propel that message. That is the best thing that any individual can do with a small amount of free time they may have. So that would be number one. Uh, number two is understanding the issues on your own. It is a lot. It is a lot of hours put in by every staff member and intern that we have, but also by every partner that we work with to understand the complexities of every international issue that we work on. The Uyghurs being just one example of a intensely complex situation and an intensely complex advocacy um, uh, problem. How do we advocate correctly on behalf of these people? How do we get the right people to focus on what's going on? It's all a big question, and it's one that I don't think there will ever be the most correct answer to. But making sure that your audience is reading what's going on and is focusing on it uh, is a big part of it. I would, again, point to an article that Erwin Kotler wrote on the 10th of this month um, in Moment magazine, which they could find online. The article is an opinion article called Indifference is Complicity. And it talks about the Uyghur situation, but it doesn't just explain what's going on. It, uh, Professor Kotler gives six major examples of what's going on and how um, that is uh, not only just genocide, but it's, it's relevant to um, previous genocides that we are familiar with. But he also gives several points as to what he believes the international community needs to do. And as the co-chair of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, his voice is propelled by organizations such as IPAC. But making sure that individuals read what's going on, are supporting those organizations as well as ours, and making sure that everyone continues to have the spotlight shined on their work is the most important part of our work. Because as he writes at the end of this article, silence and indifference in the face of evil will be complicit with evil itself. We need to make sure that we are not being complicit with the evil that's going on by speaking out, and your audience can help by making sure that when we do speak out, they're propelling our voice as much as possible. I think the last thing I would say for your audience to know is there is a lot, and no one, as I said before with the organizations, but definitely not individuals, no one can focus on everything. And it is okay, it is okay not to read every single issue that is going on. In my opinion, but many others might disagree, it's better to know a few issues really well than to know a few points of many issues. And so focusing on what's going on, not just in your home country, whether that be in South Africa, in Canada, wherever else, but also what's going on in other countries is a big part of human rights advocacy. It's the advocacy and the communications arms that work together, and if you can be part of both, by understanding the advocacy and helping with communications, you are being an A-plus citizen for the international community.